I want to tell you a little story. Um, just to start off, recently, my wife and I, we were uh, going somewhere. I don't even remember where we were going. But um, she was the one that was actually driving. And we were coming up to one of those really complicated freeway interchanges. You know the ones that just have like freeways going every which way? And you know you're, you, you know you're headed towards it. You sort of have to figure out what train you're going to be in, right? And I look up and I saw that we were approaching this, this freeway interchange. And, and I'm like, oh, hey, babe, you need, to, you need to get over in the other lane. She's like, no, I'm good. Okay, well, no, I think you need to get over in the other lane because if you want to get to where we're going, you, you got to be in that lane over there because up here it's going to turn and switch and all this stuff, and you got to be in that lane. And she's like, no, I, no, I, I think I'm good. Uh, yeah, I, I think we're good right where we're at. And, uh, and so I kind of gently persisted a little bit more and encouraged her about, oh, no, I think you need to be in this lane over here. And as we were dialoguing about it... <laughs> We were, by the, by the time we were, you know, by that time we had approached the, the, uh, that area and gotten a little bit closer and, and sure enough, just like I had told her repeatedly, we were in the correct lane the whole time. <laughs> so, okay, I was wrong. It's happened once or twice in my life, uh, I'm sure... Some of you, uh, it's a very, it was a very unfamiliar feeling to be so wrong, but, um, but you know what it's right, like Andre? Like, being wrong, like, what's that, right? Anyway, but it was one of those situations, you know those moments, whether it's you or somebody else, where you, you're, it's, it's where you're so convinced you're right when you're so wrong. You're so convinced you're right, but then in the end, you discover that you're wrong. That's what happened to me driving down the road with my wife. And that's what we see happening here in our passage this week in Luke chapter 5. So turn there if you haven't already, or open to there, or swipe to there. Luke chapter 5. We're going to be starting at verse 27. And after this, he went out, that being Jesus, and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well, have no need of a physician, and those who are sick, uh, but th sorry, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, here we have laid out for us in your word this incredible story where we see that Jesus is, is just focused and clear about the mission that you had sent him on. And Father God, I pray that this morning, as we look into, this word, uh, into your word here, and as we see this exchange between Jesus and the disciples and these tax collectors and the sinners and Levi and these religious leaders, Lord, that we would learn something from that, that we'd be able to see ourselves 
in, um, in this passage of scripture. We ask Holy Spirit for you to enlighten your word to us, illuminate it to us, show us what it means to follow you, even as Jesus called Levi. And the Lord, I pray that you would compel us by your love and by your Holy Spirit to be able to share the good news of Jesus Christ so that others can know you too. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see in this passage here that Jesus comes across this man named Levi. Levi is a tax collector, and he calls him to follow him. And Levi, being a tax collector, would have been the, one of the most unlikely people that, Jesus, that people would have expected Jesus to call to follow him to be his, his disciple. Because the problem is that Levi, being a tax collector, was someone that was, would have been a, a considered an outcast from society, basically the scum of the earth. From the, from the perspective of the Jewish community. The reason why is that the, Jew, or that the uh, tax collectors were, were part of the Jewish community, but they were seen as traitors, and they were seen as sort of turncoats and betrayers of the nation because they were working with, they were collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. And so I don't know if there was like a degree of racism there that was going on with that because um, because these tax collectors were, were working with these dirty Gentiles. I don't know if that's what it was. I don't know if it was just a nationalism, kind of a pride thing or what it was. But they were, they were, they were just very looked down upon and outcasts of society for basically working with the bad guys, working with the enemy. And more than that, not only was that, uh, that, um, that profession something that was looked down upon, but more than that, the whole system was completely corrupt. And the system allowed for these tax collectors to be able to charge the Jewish community taxes. But what they would do is they would overcharge them and skim a little bit off the top for themselves. So, the Jewish, uh, so, so the, these tax collectors were hated by the Jewish community. And the, so what we have happening here is that Jesus walks up to Levi, a tax collector, and he says, follow me. Now, to make matters worse in this moment, not only is, is Jesus doing something that's incredibly odd and something that seems to be sort of out of sorts and improper and doesn't he know what he's really doing? Doesn't he know who Levi is? To make matters worse, Levi then throws a party at his house and Jesus is at the dinner party, hanging out with all of Levi's tax collector buddies. So it was, it was this crazy scene where Jesus is hanging out with some would say the least likely people. Or even more, some might say, the most inappropriate crowd for Jesus to hang out with. Because not only were they outcasts from the Jewish community, but they were certainly outcasts and looked down upon by the religious leaders. Because for the same reasons why they were outcast within the Jewish community, the religious leaders would have viewed them as the greatest of sinners, the most unclean among them. And here Jesus is hanging out with not only Levi, not only is he called Levi to follow him, but he's now he's hanging out with Levi and all his buddies at this party, at, this, at his house, at this, at this dinner party. And when the religious leaders get wind of it, they're not too impressed, they're not too happy with it, and 
Um, in our passage here, these religious leaders were, the, were identified as the scribes of the Pharisees. And it was sort of like a scene out of Mean Girls or something. And, and they, say to, they say to their disciples, why are you guys eating and drinking with them? Religious leaders would have viewed themselves as being the closest to God. They would have viewed the tax collectors as being among the farthest from God. But the sense that the religious leaders have of their own righteousness would have been due to their own adherence to the law of Moses, their religious traditions, and their practices. And their objection to who Jesus is hanging out with here is showing how out of step, get this, how out of step the religious leaders are with Jesus, which doesn't make any sense, right? You would think that the religious leaders of all people would understand Jesus, they would understand who he was, his mission, and all of that stuff, that the scene that's unfolding in front of them would actually make perfect sense. But no, they don't get it. It offends them. And they think this is the most inappropriate thing that is taking place. But apparently, Jesus thinks it's a good idea to call a dirty, evil tax collector, someone who is collaborating with the Roman Empire, someone who is overcharging his own people taxes, to be one of his disciples. And then Jesus goes and he hangs out with him and all of his buddies at his house. Isn't it interesting that, that what we're seeing happen here is that the standards that they're seeking to project upon Jesus the standards that they're trying to impose on Jesus have a striking, a striking resemblance to their own. We do that all the time, right? We take a position on something, or better yet, we, we change our mind about something, and we drag Jesus into it, and we associate him with that, and suddenly now we've created for ourselves a new theology and we, we sort of um, attach Jesus to our new reference point or our new beliefs and our new understandings. And we sort of impose upon Jesus and we define Jesus for himself and for others. And we attach Jesus to ourselves like a trailer to a truck. And we go wherever we please, wherever we want to go, and Jesus follows. Weird how that happens. And it should be the other way around. It should be us conforming to Jesus and who Jesus is and what he's all about, not the other way around. Well, we're imposing on Jesus who he is and what he should do and what he should act like and what he should say and all these other things. And we see Jesus' response to the religious leaders in verse 31 and verse 32 of our text in Luke chapter 5. And it says there, Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's Jesus, as always, keeping it real. And he had this way of just saying a few words, but with those just few words, shutting everybody up. But it's interesting to see that Jesus is sort of even agreeing with the religious leaders. They think the tax collectors are so far from God. And Jesus is like, yeah, dude, that's sort of the point. 
You know, we, my wife and I, we talk about this kind of stuff often. We hear about people complaining about L.A. all the time and, um, and about how hard it is to live here, and that's not entirely untrue. Yeah, it can, L.A. can be a difficult place to live. But every time it gets pointed out or every time that something happens that, that reminds us of how tough L.A. can be, it doesn't so much have the effect that it makes us want to leave the city. It just reminds us, and we talk about this, it just reminds us why we're here. L.A. needs Jesus. And we can look around in our culture, and we can find all kinds of reasons to complain about what we see. And whatever angle it might be, whether it's how godless the city is, or whether it's this political system, or that political structure, or this flaw in culture, and this problem with society, and this and that, and we could sort of have that attitude of, man, this sucks, I'm getting out of here. But what if we considered ourselves to be embedded missionaries? What if we saw ourselves and saw our city as a place that we needed to be for the sake of the gospel? Not that we are the saviors of the city, Jesus is, but cities like LA need Jesus. And, and, and when we have that sort of mentality that evil and things that are wrong, when we have that thought and that reaction of wanting to flee these things, what ends up happening is that we take the gospel presence out of the city. And the whole reason why Collective Church was planted, as Isaac said, almost four years ago, was to be a beacon in the city. It was not to give Christians an alternative place to go on Sundays. It was so that people would come to know Jesus, so that we could have a presence for the gospel in the city and specifically on the west side. That is our calling. That is why God has placed us here. And no matter what the reasons are why you think that you live on the west side, whether it's your job, the school you go to, the weather, the beach, or whatever it is, don't overlook the fact that God, by his sovereign hand, has placed you where you are for his purposes, if you're a follower of him. Even now, God has placed you in the seat you're sitting in. And if you're a Christian, our hope and our prayer is that you'll be encouraged in God's word this morning. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, our hope and our prayer is that you will learn more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus this morning and how much he loves you. But how horrible would it be? What a tragedy it would be if we, as collective church, found ourselves out of sync with Jesus the way these religious leaders did. What a tragedy that would be. But I want to warn you, and hear me when I say this, collective church, if we're not very careful, we could end up just like those religious leaders, completely missing the point, completely missing Jesus. We could begin to think that we need to pull away from those that need Jesus, that the hardships in the city and the problems in our society are the reasons why we shouldn't be here. And Jesus, the whole time, he's like, I'm sending you, I'm placing you. I want you to be here, to have a gospel presence for me. But that could be us. We could be, end up, if we're not careful, to be, find ourselves in that place where we're completely out of sync with Jesus. Earlier this year, we went through a, a teaching series 
on what we call the profile of a disciple. And one of the discipleship aims that we identified is to be responsible followers of Jesus, which in a nutshell means that our lives are totally committed to him and we seek to model our lives after him, after Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we're supposed to do everything that he did in the sense that we have to learn how to walk on water and turn water into wine and and all that kind of stuff, although that would be epic and that would be awesome, especially if we did both at the same time. (laughs) But we look at the life of Jesus and passages like this one to see how he loved people and how he engaged people. And so as we seek to follow his example, the first thing that I want to point out The obvious here is that Jesus was on mission. And let's even consider why Jesus is even there. What puts him in the place, not just in Levi's house, not just that, but back up from that, why is he even there at all? Meaning in the Middle East, meaning on planet Earth. He was God in the flesh who came into this world on a rescue mission. Would it even make sense at all that his mission, Jesus' mission to reach the lost would involve not having any contact with them? Of course it wouldn't. He came for the broken, for the messed up, for those that don't measure up, for those that were far from God. And here's the thing, and here's what we need to be mindful of. That is all of us. It's all of us. Because we all have sinned, and all of our sin has separated us from God. The Bible is very clear about that. But we see that Jesus makes time for people. And he accepts the outcasts of society, even Levi, the tax collector. And with Levi, Jesus had a plan for him and saw him as the man that he would become. Levi wasn't too gross for Jesus. And even as we establish that we're all sinners, isn't it good news to know that we're not too gross for Jesus? He loves us. He wants to be in a relationship with us. And when the religious leaders took issue with who Jesus was hanging out with them, with who he was hanging out with, he just reminds them. He reminds the religious leaders that this is exactly where he was supposed to be, and this is exactly what he was supposed to be doing. But even the church, we're guilty of losing sight of that, right? We can forget what our purpose is and what it's all about. Jesus' mission was not to create the church as a community of believers that exists for themselves. You know, we can start out with that attitude and that mindset of, oh, hey, we want to like, you know, reach LA. We want to reach the West Side. We want to talk to people that don't know Jesus. We want to introduce people to Jesus. Let's, let's see what God wants to do on the West Side. And that can be our focus and that can be what drives us and motivates us and that can be our rallying cry. But then before long, We get comfortable, and we just sort of look forward to Sunday as the place we show up on the weekends, maybe twice a month. Or we go to our neighborhood dinner and say, yeah, I'll bring some mac and cheese or something. And we just sort of lose that compelling drive. We we lose that sense of our own identity and the nature of the church and what this is all about. 
Jesus did not create the church as a community of, of believers to exist for ourselves. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and hear me when I say this, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and the only people you know are Christians, you're not doing your job. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and you're not seeking to engage people who don't know Jesus in relationship and sharing your life with them and inviting them into your life and sort of seeking to engage them where they're at, you're not doing your job. Our call as believers is to live as embedded missionaries, embedded right here, on mission to reach people that are all around us and enter into the lives of others rather than retreat into our Christian circles. But it's so easy for us to do that. It's so easy for, for us to do that. And if we begin to exist for ourselves, we're not doing it right. So I ask you, are we doing it right? Are you doing it right? That's one of the reasons why we're not a program-driven church, meaning... We don't, have we don't have a program or a ministry for every possible category of person or area of life. Now, yes, I'm, I'm the only one currently on staff, and sometimes that's overwhelming, but that is not the only reason why we don't have more going on. Sometimes you're like, well, we want all these things to happen, but yeah, I get it. Lorenzo's the only person on staff. He can only do so much, so we'll be patient and we'll wait, and once we have more staff, we'll be able to do more stuff, but that's not, what, that's not what's going to happen. Being a simple church in this way and not being a program-driven church is core to who we are. It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of our DNA at Collective Church. And we will never be that kind of church. And I'll tell you why. Because we don't want to become a church that exists for itself. We don't want to clutter up your calendar with events and ministries with all this stuff that's going on. And there's so much going on that you're not living out there where you're supposed to be living as embedded missionaries. And it's not just you, it's me too. Earlier in this chapter, Luke chapter five, Jesus, we didn't read it, but Jesus references being salt and light in the world. And he also points out that you're supposed to let your light shine and he states the obvious that you're not supposed to take your light and put it under a basket. But here's the thing. Sometimes all the church stuff we do becomes a basket. We can be so busy and so engaged in all these things that it ends up hurting our witness because it cuts us off from building relationships and having quality time with the people that live in our building, on our street, on the other side of the duplex or whatever, or the people that we work with for that matter, the people that we go to school with. Now, church stuff is good. As a church, we want to help. I mean, we've stated this. Our, our stated goal is to help reach, teach, and equip people. That takes time and effort and energy and rhythms to be able to do all of that. But we've, we've, we've dialed it back, and we, we've sort of sought to just focus on what is essential to growing in Jesus and in community with one another for his purposes. That's why we have so little going on, not because we have no staff. And because we have so little going on, that allows you to say yes 
and participate in 100% of what we're doing because it's not that much. So we can really be the church, equip one another, encourage one another, live in community, all those sorts of things, disciple one another. But we don't have so much going on that you're too busy, that we're too busy. It's even one of the reasons why our neighborhood dinners happen every other week and not every week. But we gotta be out there in real life. And if we're not interacting and building relationships with those outside of the church, it means that we're losing our missional edge, which is supposed to be at the core of who we are and speaks to why we even exist as a local church. Author Christopher Wright, he puts it this way. He said, it is not so much that the church has a mission in the world, but that the mission has a church in the world. The mission existed before the church did. The church doesn't come after mission. The, church, uh, the mission becomes, comes before the church. That's why the church was established. And if you doubt that, which came first, Jesus or the church? This is not a chicken and egg joke. Which came first, Jesus or the church? Jesus came on mission, and then he birthed and established the church to continue out his work in the world to reach people and to make disciples. Biblically speaking, every church should be a missional church, meaning engaged on God's God's mission to reach people, make disciples. And as the church is people, there's no biblical category for a Christian that is not both a disciple and a disciple maker. Now, if I took a poll, if I hadn't just made that statement and I took a poll and I said, who here considers themselves a disciple or a disciple of Jesus? There'd be a certain number of people that would affirm, yes, I consider myself a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Then if I asked a second question, I said, who here considers themselves a disciple maker? I bet you not even half of people would affirm that they consider themselves a disciple maker. I don't know. I don't want to throw you guys under the bus. I'm just saying we often separate those two things. And we mean well. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. Yeah, but I don't know if I'm really helping other people to follow Jesus. I don't know if I'm sharing the gospel that much. I don't know if I'm helping other people to grow in their relationship with him. And we need to just be honest about that. But we also need to be honest about the fact that the Bible knows no distinction between those two things. If you're called to be a disciple, you're called to be a disciple maker. In fact, that's another one of the discipleship aims that we identified in this series I mentioned earlier. Not only, not only are we to be responsible followers of Jesus, but we're to be responsible disciple makers as well. And put plainly, responsible disciple makers are those that accept responsibility for making disciples. It's like stating the obvious. And that basically involves helping people to know, love, and live for Jesus. It involves sharing Jesus with people that don't know him and helping those that do know him to grow in their relationship with him. Our text reveals the clarity that Jesus had about his mission to reach people. And I'll say that if we're not compelled to reach others for Jesus, we should ask him to give us a heart like his. If we're not compelled to reach others for Jesus, we should ask him to change our hearts so that we can have a heart like his. I don't want to point fingers. I don't want to condemn you. I don't want to freak out and yell and scream and create a scene and all that kind of stuff. And I don't want you walking away from here feeling bad and feeling guilty and feeling whipped and beaten or anything like that. 
But I hope you're starting to think of the people that are in your life that you've not yet taken the opportunity to share the gospel with. I don't say that to condemn you or to guilt trip you. I say that to encourage you. And I'm telling you right now, this isn't in my notes. I'm saying this because I'm thinking of people in my life right now. Yes, I can think and talk at the same time. We should be thinking about that. And if you don't even know those people, we should be thinking about the people that we need to know. Like maybe it is your neighbor. I've not met my neighbor yet. We've been neighbors for three and a half years. Uh, I've not met my neighbor yet. Well, we need to change that, right? If we're not reaching out and spending time with people that are far from God, as it relates to this stuff, as it relates to mission, we actually have more in common with the religious leaders than we do Jesus. Gross, right? Think about that. We have more in common with these religious leaders that were disgusted that Jesus would reach out to people that were far from God if we're not reaching out and spending time with people just like that. We have more in common with the religious leaders than Jesus. Now, there's a couple of things that I need to point out. Jesus met people where they're at and he hung out with them. So should we go hang out at strip clubs or participate in other nefarious activities? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus never endorsed sin and never participated in sin, and we shouldn't either. So I don't want anyone walking away going, all right, let's go to the strip club. Lorenzo said so. On mission. There was a weird cult in the 70s. Aren't they all weird? But there was a weird cult in the 70s that engaged in some strange outreach practices. I doubt anyone here was even born in that decade. Maybe there was, I don't know. Anyway, but they engaged in some strange outreach practices, and, and they were into something called flirty fishing. Flirty fishing. Look it up. Or not. It was a form of evangelistic religious prostitution practiced by female members of the cult. And they would go into town, and they'd hit the bars, and hook up with dudes to recruit them into the cult. So no, don't do that. (laughs) We don't want to do stuff like that. So there's a limit. We need to use wisdom and not do anything that gets all messed up and weird and, and means that we're participating in sin and engaged in sin. Jesus didn't do that. That's not his example. And so we won't do that. The other thing I want to point out is that Jesus didn't hang out with sinners as if just hanging out with sinners was the point. We see here in our passage that he was calling them to repentance. When they challenged him, he said that this was my calling, to see some sinners come to repentance. We see that in verse 32, to see them make a change in direction. This is actually an area, in all honesty and transparency, this is an area where I really blew it recently. Um, I don't even know if I should say this, but I'm gonna. But um, we, my wife and I, our family, we've, we've been building relationships with several of our neighbors. I hope none of them are here today. And, um, and there were some neighbors in particular that we really hit it off with and uh, had a great relationship with. And, and then one day they came over and they're like, hey, we're moving. 
And I was like, great, but not great because I like you and I'm going to miss you and I like hanging out with you and all that kind of stuff. But I was also in that moment suddenly hit with the realization that I had become evangelistically lazy. And I had been lacking in that sense of missional urgency. And we had had several conversations about God that even come out to our church services before, but I had never really laid out that I really wanted them to know Jesus or ask them to consider the reality of life outside of a relationship with Jesus. We talked about religion. We talked about sort of gospel-y stuff and certainly about God and church. But I never really said, like, here it is, and I want you to, to, to know Jesus. We have to be careful that even as we are seeking to build relationships, even if we take that step, right, which we should, as we're seeking to build relationships and connect with people, that that's not the goal. Hey, I got friends who don't know Jesus. Check off the box. Jesus did that. He hung out with people that were far from God. But even in his defense to these religious leaders who objected to what he was doing, it's crystal clear. He says it right there in the text in verse 32 that he was seeking to call them to repentance, to make a change in direction. I just confess that to you. It can happen. Bad pastor. But we can become indifferent, distracted from the mission, and lose that sense of missional urgency. Do we want the people that we know and love to die without Jesus? Of course we don't. Do we believe they need Jesus? Of course we do. Then how do we explain our evangelistic laziness? Most believers believe that they should reach people for Jesus, but most believers rarely share Jesus with anybody. And that's why we recently put on a workshop, actually, to equip people with the tools to help them have gospel conversations with people. And despite the story that I shared just now, it's an approach that has really, I have found, increased the frequency that I'm finding myself sharing the gospel with people. And um, it was sort of a test run with, with some of our mission members, and I can't wait to open it up to the church as a whole. I'm really excited about how this will help equip us uh, and help us to have gospel conversations with people. We probably, there's a lot going on with everything, but uh, I don't know, we might not be able to do it until next quarter, but we're definitely going to put it on as, as soon as we possibly can. But I, I want to say this. If you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've probably been feeling like I'm talking to a room full of hunters and you're a deer. If, you're, if a friend invited you and you're here, and you're like, oh, this is so weird this whole time. Like, I guess I'm one of those people that is not a follower of Jesus. I don't identify that way. And all this time, the preacher is talking about how they're trying to reach people that aren't followers of Jesus. I feel really uncomfortable and I'm just, oh, I just want to leave. I'm sorry for that. I really am. But I think and I hope I think in a second, it will all make a little bit more uh, sense, so just, just bear with me. And, and this is where I'm really speaking to, to everyone, addressing both sides of this. Because there's something else that we glean from Jesus, who is our model for mission, and that's his motivation. Jesus was motivated by love. The mission of Jesus was motivated by love. 
So if you're asking if we have an agenda, I'll tell you, yes. I'll admit it. We have, we have an agenda. We want people to come to know Jesus, okay? And as a pastor, it's part of my job to equip the people that are part of the collective church family, to equip them to have conversations with people, to share their faith with people that don't know Jesus. We do have an agenda. We want people that don't know Jesus to come to know who Jesus is and experience his life-transforming love. He changed our lives, and we want you to know him the way we know him. Like Jesus, we want to see people as people to love. We don't, and we reject this idea, seeing people as projects to complete. So if you're feeling awkward and you're uncomfortable and you're wondering why you're here and you feel like we're really talking about you this whole time, this whole time, I want you to know we love you as a person and we don't regard you as a project that needs to be completed. If what we believe about Jesus is true, is it not loving to share that news with people? Is it not loving to share that news? That's our agenda, to share the love of Jesus Christ with people because we love people. Penn Gillette, he's part of the whole Penn and Teller magician duo. I'm sure that you guys are familiar with him. He tells a story of a man that hung back after one of their shows waiting to speak with them, and Penn um, after this exchange, he felt compelled to shoot a video on his phone and post it to YouTube about this whole thing that happened with this dude. And this guy was hanging back after one of their shows, and he was waiting for Penn, because uh, you don't have a conversation with Teller, and if you don't know what that means, Google it. Um, so he's talking to Penn, and um, Penn had very kind words to say about this man. This man was very respectful to, to Penn. He, this man was very complimentary about the show, and he had very, some very nice things to, to say to Penn. And then this man says to him, I just want to give you this, and he handed him a small Bible. And I guess they ended up having a, a very nice conversation. Now, Penn, if you don't know, is very upfront about being an atheist. He's very upfront about being an atheist. But he was struck by this man's gesture, so much so that he shot this video, and you can find it on YouTube if you want. But this is what he said. This is Penn speaking and, and recounting and retelling um, uh, about this exchange that he had had with this man. Penn says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward... How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? Crazy, huh? How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. We have to think through, this is heavy stuff, right? We've got to think through what does our missional engagement or lack thereof say about how much we are reflecting the love of Jesus to people? 
Now, Penn Jillette didn't exactly become a Christian in that moment, but he respected the man for loving him enough to give him the gift of that Bible and have that conversation with him. Jesus calls us to love people, period. While we want people to come to know Jesus, and I've already confessed that that is our agenda, we're also called to love people. We're just called to love people. That means the love that we extend to people and the love that we offer people is not contingent upon anyone being receptive to the message of Jesus. It means we'll love them anyway. They're not just our projects that we love so that they'll come to know Jesus. They're people that we love because Jesus told us to. And yes, we want them to come to know Jesus and we want to share Jesus with them, but that's a decision that they have to make. And if they never want to, if they never come to that point where they place their faith in Jesus, that's their choice. And it doesn't change how we relate to them or how much love we owe them and how we follow Jesus by loving them. If our missional activity is compelled or propelled by anything other than love, anything other than love, we are undermining the message of Jesus. Back to the agenda thing. People that don't know Jesus aren't boxes to check off. I already said they're not projects to complete. Yes, we want to know people about Jesus, and I guess there's a sense of duty in that because we recognize that we're called to do that. But if we are driven by anything other than love, we are undermining the message of Jesus. And if that's not where your heart is at, like I said earlier, ask God to give you his heart for people. Because it was for love that Jesus came in the first place. John 3, 16, very famous, well-known verse. And actually 17 as well to go with it. It says, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, being Jesus, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We can never lose sight of God's heart for people. So Jesus is our role model for mission. And we see that he was motivated by love. And all of that should remind us of our own need for him. Because, like I said earlier, we're all sinners. And if we find ourselves now following Jesus, the Bible says that we have been saved by his grace. The things that we are guilty of, Jesus took the punishment for all those things upon himself. And that's why we've received salvation by his grace. See, there wasn't a whole lot of difference between the tax collectors and the religious leaders when you, when you really think about it, as you look at the story. There's not a whole lot of difference between them. They both needed Jesus, and it's possible that the religious leaders were the most blind to it. We even see in that encounter with Jesus and Levi, Levi immediately follows Jesus. 
And here we have these stuck-up, self-righteous religious leaders who are offended that Jesus would seek to reach those far from God. They didn't get it at all. Jesus came to rescue tax collectors. He came to rescue sinners. He came to rescue religious leaders. Jesus came to rescue us all. And nothing about Jesus on the cross makes any sense unless we understand our sin. Think about it. Nothing about Jesus on the cross makes any sense at all unless we understand our sin. Because on the cross, we see love, we see mercy, we see forgiveness, and we even see justice because justice was served when Jesus stepped in to take the punishment upon himself for our sins so that now we can freely and completely enter into a relationship with God without reservation or hoping for acceptance because Jesus guaranteed it. Jesus guarantees that we are accepted by a holy God. And all that was necessary for a restored relationship with God was made possible by Jesus on the cross. So if you're part of our church family, my encouragement to you is, let's go. Let's do this. And if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that we love you and it's because we love you that we want you to know that Jesus loves you. And he wants you to come into a relationship with him. He wants you to submit your life to him and follow him. And though I can't promise that it will be easy, I can promise you it will be so worth it. And I want you to consider that. And maybe even this morning, maybe this would be the moment where you place your faith in Jesus. It's not enough to have a belief in Jesus, but where you actually become a follower of Jesus. You commit your whole life to him. Maybe that will happen this morning. I would, consider, I would challenge you to consider that. Let's pray together.